Our gospel reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. This is uh, Jesus sending out 12 disciples fairly early in his uh, ministry, and there are there's plenty they still have to learn, and yet, at this point, he sends them out. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and God, we do thank you for your word that you have given to us. God, we thank you for the various gifts that you have given, and we, God, we do pray that you would help us to use them for the purposes that you have given them. God, we pray this morning that you'd help us to hear your word, and God, that by your word and by your spirit, we would be further formed and shaped as your people this morning. As those who come closer to you, as we become more conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Rather, go to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the, for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff. For the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Turning then to our New Testament reading, Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 8. This is uh, near the very end of the book of Hebrews, and the author has been explaining how uh, there is no point in turning away from Jesus to go back to uh, the Old Testament without Jesus. That Jesus is uh, what the whole thing was pointing to and uh, leading us to, and so life in him uh, should not be exchanged for anything else. And then he concludes, and begins the conclusion by saying this, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, uh, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. 
for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, says the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I was uh, not here last week, but my understanding is that uh, Ezra preached on uh, loving one another, the need to take care of each other. And um, this week, the passage that we're going to be looking at, unfortunately, has often been used as an excuse to not do those things, to not love one another or to not take care of each other, which is really unfortunate because I believe that the purpose of this passage is exactly the opposite, that this is a passage about uh, the need to love one another and take care of each other. Uh, So that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. Um, and I want us to do it kind of with, with fresh eyes. So here's, here's the way I want us to think about this. A lot of times, you already know what's coming. You've, you've seen the, <laughs> the, the video. Uh, you know which passage this is. Too often, uh, when we think of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the way that it gets read is as a passage that lets us know who the bad people are so that we, from a comfortable distance, can throw stones at them, right? This is very much the Jonah approach. Jonah, who was sent to Nineveh, didn't want to go there because that's where the bad people are. And then even after he goes to them, still sits on the edge of the town and looks over, uh, just hoping that God does destroy them because, after all, those are the bad people, right? And us, of course, reading the book of Jonah are like, ha, 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 Jonah's the bad person, and I can laugh at him and his ridiculous, oh, wait, now I'm just like him too, okay, We have that same kind of uh, reading of this passage all too often. And I don't think that's the point of this passage. I don't think the point of this passage is to turn us into a Jonah-like prophet. But rather, I think that this passage, like many other in Scripture, is to be read more as an intervention. You guys know what an intervention is? When you have somebody who has an addiction that is ruining their life and the lives of those around them, and the people who love them and care about them get together, and they just confront them, make them see this is where you are, this is where your life is headed if you continue down this path. And we're telling you this because we love you and we care about you and we want something better for you. I think this is that kind of passage, and we are to read it that kind of way, that our loving Heavenly Father is giving this to us as kind of a mirror to our own life, where we are to look uh, at it from that perspective, as an intervention in ways in which maybe we have some changes to make. So with that in mind, excited now, this is Genesis 19, verses 1 through 29. And of course, we will hear this within the context of what we've been looking at all through Genesis 1 to 18 so far, and the way that... uh, We have seen God 
create everything good and the way that people have just insisted on destroying his good creation. Generation after generation after generation. And the way that he has uh, set everything up where all the relationships were good between people and God, between people and each other, between people and all creation, and we just mess it all up. And so... uh, The thing that we see, though, is with God is both the absolute right he has to just destroy everything and say, nope, not like that. But what we also see with God is his continued faithful perseverance and his loving character towards his people who he continues to work with and to work through to redeem his creation, and even to redeem his people. And so that's the story that we've been looking at, and we've seen the ways that people try to take everything a different direction, and God just keeps bringing it back. And so we saw with, um, when we see with the um, Noah and the flood, how wickedness had become so bad, he wipes out the whole world. Well, not the whole world. He actually chooses somebody and his family through whom he's going to redeem uh, humanity. And then we move on down and we see the Tower of Babel and the way that people go to make a name for themselves as they build this tower to the heavens. And God says, no, not that. But then he picks, he chooses a man and his family through whom he's going to redeem all of humanity. And in fact, the whole world. And last time uh, that I was here, we were talking about exactly that, of God coming to meet this man named Abraham and saying, here's what's coming. I'm going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah because of the wickedness that's there. And Abraham, we see in kind of this priestly role, interceding for the city and saying, you're not going to destroy it, though, if, if there are you know, even ten righteous people. And God's like, no, I wouldn't do that. And then we find this. Genesis 19, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went out to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge? We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. 
The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against his people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, Hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. This ends with Abraham standing there looking out over the cities much like Jonah looking over Nineveh, right? How do you think, though, Abraham might have felt looking out over the cities and seeing the destruction that Jonah was wishing for? Think he was excited about that? I don't think so. Abraham had just been interceding for these cities and saying, God, don't destroy them. If they're any righteous people there. And if there are 50, don't destroy it. If there are 45, if there are 40, all the way down to 10, you wouldn't destroy it for that, would you? And God says, no. And then the next day, Abraham goes out and he looks, and God has destroyed it. What is Abraham to conclude? Either God has broken what he said to Abraham, or there weren't even 10 righteous people in those cities, Right? What else do you think he might have concluded about Lot? Probably no more Lot. And yet, there is more to the story. There's always more to the story. And so we get more, we get a better picture of what was going on than what Abraham got. We get to see some of the uh, interactions that happened 
that night. And one of the things that is uh, that has stuck out to me is the time frame that keeps being discussed throughout. Did you catch all the time elements throughout? So first they get there in the evening, and then before they had gone to bed in verse 4, is when uh, things begin to escalate. Um, and then verse 15, it's with the coming of dawn that the angels urge Lot here. This has been going on all night. You hear this? It starts before they've gone to bed, and it's still going on when uh, the angels are urging them to leave. What is with this hesitation? It takes all night for the angels to get Lot and his family to go. And in fact, even at that point in verse 16, they are saying, hurry, go. And in verse 16, it says, When he hesitated, the men grabbed his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them out. What is going on here? How much do we see uh, Lot being unwilling to leave the wickedness that surrounds him? I think that's a big part of what this story is supposed to confront us with is here we have a man who is, he, he's doing some things differently than the people around him, obviously. When we saw the three men show up uh, to Abraham, uh, outside Abraham's tent, what does Abraham do? He meets them with what we were describing as extreme hospitality, right? That's what Abraham greets them with, welcomes them. This is what we read in Hebrews when it says, you know, uh, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And what do we see with Lot? Well, same kind of thing, right? And the comparison between how Lot treats these men and how Abraham treats these men looks pretty good, especially when you contrast it with how the rest of Sodom treated these men, right? This is a big contrast. They were not at all uh, welcoming these outsiders and these strangers to their parts. And yet, what do we see with Lot? Is Lot unaware of their wickedness, the wickedness of Sodom? Is he unaware? Oh, I don't think so. I think the first indication we get of that is when uh, the men come and Lot says, hey, come to my house. Stay, stay with me. And then they're like, no, 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 that's all right. We'll stay in the square. And how does Lot respond to that? <laughs> oh, no. This is not the place you want to go stay in the square. He insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house, and he prepared a meal for them. He knows where he lives. He knows the, uh, the wickedness of the whole community. And yet, though he knows that this is a, uh, a wicked place, this is where he has decided to live. And when the time is up for these people, 
and the judgment is going to come on uh, the sin, he has an option. He has a decision to make. To go with God to safety or to stay with the wickedness that he has been living in and be destroyed. And when you paint it in such clear terms, it seems absolutely absurd that anyone would choose to stay in the place that's going to be destroyed, right? If you knew that there was going to be, um, you know, the military is doing this test, you know, atomic bomb blast in this area, and so everybody in this area needs to evacuate before they do this because blah, blah, blah. You evacuate, right? But he hesitates, and he hesitates, and he hesitates to the point that they just have to drag him out of there. said this is like an intervention for us as we read this. Uh, I think the reason that we find it hard uh, to see it that way is because what we are, what we tend to do, our natural tendency is to see people who sin differently than us as worse than us. And we see uh, even collective sins as, the, you know, the, oh, the problem in all of Sodom. And I bet everybody in Sodom could have pointed to somebody else and been like, well, sure, the judgment's coming, but it's because of those guys who are doing that stuff. <laughs> There's a whole range of things that make Sodom point where they are. Uh, we have talked about this before. God has revealed himself to be this. This is in Exodus 34. This is the most quoted verse in all the Old Testament. Proclaimed before Moses, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Do you hear that? That there is judgment on sin, but God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. And uh, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. In other words, the judgment comes. That is because God has already been gracious and compassionate and forgiving and long-suffering that their time was up. So what was it that he was being patient with, with Sodom? You flip over to Ezekiel, it tells us. Ezekiel 16, uh, verses 49 and 50, when Ezekiel is talking to the people of Judah and telling them, just how far off track they are and how patient God has been with them to this point. 
And he starts describing them in the same terms as Sodom and Gomorrah and saying how basically what you're doing now is even worse than where they were. And then he describes it. This is what it was. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. This is where it may get a little uncomfortable for us. This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. You hear what Ezekiel is saying? The issue was in Sodom? What was the one thing that Sodom was doing that was so wrong? There wasn't just one thing, was it? This was an entire culture of having turned away from God. A culture where they were satisfied with their own wickedness and saw no need to turn to God. They saw no need for righteousness, as no matter how patient God had become with them. In other words, the entire community had become just like the world before the flood. Every inclination of the heart being wicked, evil. And what we see is God choosing a man and his family to rescue out of this. Through whom, actually, he's going to redeem the world. We'll see that, little hints of that next week. But for the moment, let's just sit with this. Ezekiel says that in Sodom, they were overfed and unconcerned. Oh, no, sorry, they were arrogant, and they were overfed, and they were unconcerned. And they did not help the poor and the needy. Does this hit us close to home? That they were haughty, and they did detestable things before me. When Lot hears the message from the angels, he tells the rest of his family. They said, go get anybody else you have that belongs to you in the city. Tell them it's time to get out. This is what is coming. Lot hesitates, but even as he tells his sons-in-law, what did they, how did they respond? They thought he was joking. If you had somebody standing on a railroad track and you said, the train is coming, and they thought you were joking, that would be tragic. I actually had a moment like that in my life when I was, I don't remember how old. My brother was, a little brother who was like two, I'd been like ten, another brother who's eight. And we were visiting uh, some friends up in Kansas, and we always liked to go down and uh, explore the railroad track that was there and see what all we could find. There were always treasures and uh, scraps. But anyway, <laughs> so we had just seen a train go by, so we're like, all right, we got some time here. So we start walking on the tracks, and a pickup pulls up and starts honking its horn and yelling at us, there's a train coming, there's a train coming. And our initial response was, <laughs> I don't know what he's talking about. 
we just saw one come by here. He must be thinking of that one. It's the schedule, but it already came by early. We're good. And about that time, we see a train come around the corner. <laughs> it was a different train. And we had to scramble off of there before it got to us. A little bit terrifying. Anyway, we were all fine. Um, but that's what's going on here. Like, there is this judgment coming. And they think, and yeah, he's talking about it. He's, he's joking. That would never happen. As we look at this ourselves, we have to ask the question, you know, when we listen to Jesus, do we think he's joking? Um, there's a book by uh, Sky Jatani. says It's called, What If Jesus Was Serious? About the Sermon on the Mount. And the way he opens that book is by saying that in a class he did on the Sermon on the Mount, they read through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And then he asked the question, how many of you think that Jesus really expects us to live like this? And no one raised their hand. Even though the way the sermon ends is by saying that those who hear these words of mine and do not put them into practice is like the foolish man who builds his house on sand, right? But basically, it's those who actually understand that I'm serious and put this stuff into your life, that's who's building their house on the rock. Just before that, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And we hear this, and I think all too often we think he's joking. He's not joking. He talks about judgment that is coming. And when he talks about the judgment that's coming, he's talking to the people who are following him. In Matthew 25, we talked about it before, he says, then when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and he's on his glorious throne, and he will separate people as sheep from goats. Now say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Do we believe Jesus or do we think he's joking? God is gracious. 
He is compassionate. He rescues Lot out before the judgment comes. Not only that, but that little town that he goes to, Zoar, he rescues, he saves that entire town for the sake of Lot, who he saved for the sake of Abraham. But it's only those who are uh, who are saved that are saved from the judgment that is coming. And it doesn't seem to be much because of Lot himself. You look at the hesitation that he had. The bulletin cover this morning, we have the, the hourglass. I don't know how many of you ever watched the old soap opera Days of Our Lives. Maybe it's still on. I have no idea. But you remember how that start? Ascends through the hourglass. These are the days of our lives. Which makes sense. You only have so many days. We don't know how many. But they pass through. And then, of course, the show would go on to depict people just wasting every day of their lives. I think this, um, this passage is intended to wake us up to the ways in which we might be too comfortable with wickedness in our own lives. Don't start looking at others. It's not what that's about. But the wickedness that we have become too comfortable with. Things that we that are getting in the way of our relationship with God or that are getting in the way of others' relationship with God that we need to get rid of. Don't hesitate. Or maybe we have something that we know that God has been calling us to do. That we haven't been doing. We haven't been taking him seriously. We've been putting it off because there's plenty of time for that. One of these days we'll get to it. Don't hesitate. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, let us Consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That's what we ought to be doing together. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I wonder if this might be a reference back to Sodom and Gomorrah. As the day is approaching and when that day comes, this day of the Lord, time's up. We know it's coming. And with the resurrection of Jesus, the light has already dawned. The night is nearly over. The day is nearly here. Therefore, we ought to live like it. So what is it? What is one change that you know that you need to be making, that God is calling you to make either something that you need to be getting rid of, getting free from, or something you need to be doing you've been putting off. 
I'm going to give you a little time to think about that. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says the acts of the flesh are obvious. This is the stuff that we're naturally drawn to. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.